Welcome to episode 44 of How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools and the inspiration you need to make a difference right now, right from your living room. The best antidote to anxiety is action. There's 132 what days until the most important election of our lives, and we will win if we all get involved. That's how we do it. Joining us today is former Obama speechwriter and best-selling author David Litt. He has a brand new book called Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think. So basically, he's going to tell us how to fix our democracy. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We Win. One of our former podcast guests is being vetted for the vice presidency. What? Who's that? Did you not know that? Is Representative Bass being vetted? Yes. This news came out overnight that she's being vetted head of the Congress chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, leading the House Democrats on their police reform bill and just an all around kick-ass person. Oh my gosh. But if you want to learn more about her, definitely go back through our archives and take a listen to one of our early podcasts where she broke down her approach to organizing. So full disclosure, of course, if you listen to this podcast, you know that Mariah works with Representative Bass with Sea Change PAC, her her PAC. Uh, Mariah's the executive director of that. And we're huge, huge Karen Bass fans over here. That caveat aside, she would make an awesome vice president. She would actually be a really good selection. Makes a lot of sense. It really does. She's she's the real deal, and she's awesome. So yeah. definitely look into her if you're not familiar with her work. You probably are and maybe just don't even know it. And if you live in the L.A. area, you're already a huge fan. But outside of L.A., check her out. I like it. Community organizer turned vice president. Where have I heard that before? Hmm. Sounds familiar. <laughs> right. Could we use some more community organizing in this day and age? I think we could. Yeah, totally. Um, can we dunk on Trump a little bit? I think he deserves to be dunked on. No, Steve, it's too easy this week. I know it's just the setup, <laughs> but I'm short and I don't am not able to dunk very easily. So <laughs> I appreciate any opportunity where it's just teed up for me right there. That Tulsa right, that Tulsa oh, rally, Tulsa time. I have a lot of family in Oklahoma, as anyone who listened to our special Father's Day bonus episode <laughs> knows. Boy, that was that was so satisfying to see him just droning on about all the important stuff that we want to hear about the you know how he drinks water and how he walks down ramps to a one third full arena. Mm. He also um, had a lot of racist things to say. So, you know, yeah, just let's not forget about that. Here's what I don't understand is that the campaign was planning for 800,000 people. (laughs) Like what? Like only 400,000 people live in all of like that's the entire population of Tulsa. Right. Plus another Tulsa. What did they think that? Every, <laughs> like, did they not 
I, I would I would have been very suspicious about that. They were doubling up on the Tulsa, and um, for those who don't know what happened, it was uh, teenagers. I love, I love, love, love when kids are getting involved in this election and making their vo- <laughs> making their voices and actions heard. That gives me hope more than anything else and gets me really, really excited because we need kids involved. And even teenagers that couldn't vote and, and also uh, K-pop stands, super fans of K-pop got involved too and RSVP'd so that the campaign thought they had a million people showing up. They set up an extra stage outside, an overflow stage where Trump was going to go do a second speech and rally. I could just imagine them all excited, flying over on Air Force One to their Tulsa, the reliably red Tulsa, to go have their big, triumphant, kicking off my campaign, I don't care how many people die of coronavirus rally. And um, apparently the people of Tulsa care about not dying of coronavirus because they opted not to show up. Right. And um, nice themselves to to buy out those tickets. <laughs> but at the, at the same time, I think it's important to note also that even if they hadn't done that, the turnout for this was going to be really low. Like there's just nobody showing up. They just look foolish for thinking and preparing for a million people. Well, okay, so <laughs> here's here's the important thing. So so it's fun to dunk on this and and talk about this. Uh, and we've also seen some very promising polls. And so this feeling that we have right now of these great looking polls and Trump not filling his uh, his rally in Tulsa makes us feel good, right? It makes us feel a little confident. But we no. we cannot feel confident. We cannot get complacent at all or rest on our laurels. We can't pay attention to the polls. Trump has been on the attack, attacking vote by mail again, calling this election already uh, could be the most rigged election in history, sowing all that doubt in the results. This has to be a blowout. We have to work every day as if we are far behind because he's going to question everything and so doubt for every aspect of this election. Yeah, um, the voter suppression effort is in full swing, and uh, the only counter to that is is turnout, apparently, since the Republicans and uh, the federal government don't seem to be able to rein that in. So to your point, like, I'm not comfortable at all. I'm very uncomfortable. <laughs> right. I'm extremely uncomfortable. And not being able to go knock on doors is making me extra uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so we we got to be doing our online and, and phone organizing as much as possible right now. It's a really good point. We've got to double down on our voter contact strategies that we have remotely, keeping people safe, keeping people healthy, and uh, and seeing how this all evolves. But coronavirus cases are surging. They, um, right. you know, they're they're not waning. As we are opening up and being careful and, and using all the precautions, we're we're still we're not seeing that that curve come down. And God, why is it? Why is this a partisan issue, Mariah? Why is wearing masks a partisan issue? Just the the leadership is so inept; it's literally killing people. It's I can't wrap my head around it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, this is one of the challenges, right? And this is one of those things where whenever there's a big emergency, 
you know, you're like, okay, who's in charge? Who do we listen to? And this moment has proven that for the most part, unfortunately, the federal government not in charge. Local governments in different parts of the country are doing a lot better, but we really have to take on a lot of personal responsibility for ourselves, our families, and our communities. And things are opening up here in California, yet we're seeing the numbers rise. And we had a, you know, a repair person come to our house recently and the company called us a week later, positive coronavirus test. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So we went and did the drive-through coronavirus testing mm-hmm. at uh, Dodger Stadium. And I've never had an experience like this. Like hundreds and hundreds of cars lined up, helicopters flying overhead. Nobody will communicate with you without, you know, writing things down because they're no, they don't want you to even open your car windows. Right. And uh it was it was a real eye-opening experience that it kind of we have fatigue. It feels like this is on the wane. It's not. It's really not. You're right about the fatigue. You know, everyone listening to this, hang in there. You know, I, my daughter is really fatigued. She's going to turn 18 in August and oh, wow. she's like, wants to have a party or yeah, something like, and course, she's worried about school and like every fiber of my being as a dad wants to just say, yeah, screw it. Come on. I just want you to be happy. I want you to feel good, right. you know, and, uh, and we have to be vigilant. This is unfortunately are the task we have right now um so stay safe stay healthy stay involved we've got to keep going uh, stay plugged in do not let the momentum from the black lives matter movement wane because we have you know seen as we've talked about in the last few weeks we've seen some really tangible results and and um God, I was looking at the New York Times bestseller list. A friend of mine posted like 19 of the top 20 books are all about anti-racism on the oh, New York wow. Times nonfiction bestseller list. You know, we've had lip service and we've had people pay attention to this and then stop paying attention. But people are really plugging in, educating themselves, keep at it um, and hang in there. And um, yeah, go team. <laughs> Go to. I love that. I love that people are educating themselves about things and and doing the reading. And you know, when we started this podcast, that was our hope for it is that it would be an opportunity for people to take a little bit of time every week and and learn a little bit more about what's going on in the world around us and, and how we can impact it. So I feel like people's minds are open more than ever. So share us with your friends. Right. Well, that's part of <laughs> open our open their minds too. <laughs> that's part of our to-do list and we're we're going to uh David Litt, it was great. We had a really uh great talk with him. So, we're going to uh learn a little bit about his fixes for democracy. But before we do, a few months back, we did a great thing over a month where we doubled our listeners just by having everybody share their podcast with one person that's not already subscribed and get them to subscribe. So we want to double up again. So we're going to double up in July, and we're asking all of our listeners to find one more person. If everyone does it, we double our listeners. We get more people educated, engaged, inspired, and working towards this blowout that we really need. 
I think it's a great idea. And I think you're referring to the thing that I could never say <laughs> for all of February, phone a friend February. That's right. <laughs> and, tell, and it was a long February too. And tell them about the podcast. So thanks to everyone who did it. Tell one more person. You know, I'm going to tell somebody who's texting me baby pictures yesterday. And guess what my response is going to be? <laughs> That's so I, I got to look at these baby pictures. You got to listen to my pod. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, look, you're going to be texting baby pictures before too long, too. So, you know, careful what you throw out there. But you do raise a good point about texting because uh, I just liked the alliteration of phone a friend February, but actually texting the link to the podcast is way more effective. So, text good. away. Our other thing for people to do this week that we really want people to promote, we've got we've got two super easy things for people to do this week. One, share the podcast. The other one is to share our college program at Swing Left. Uh, the link will be on our on our podcast page, but it's swingleft.org/college. You can remember that too. And uh, we are opening up our our fellowship program and our college programs again. And, uh, and these have been really, really successful. We've had some amazing organizers come out of this program. So please share that with any young peeps. If you're a young peep yourself, take a look at it. Um, if you know college-aged peeps, then share that with them. Will they be doing things besides buying up tickets to... Trump rallies. I'm sure. I hope that I hope the I hope the teenagers keep doing that. Just every single Trump rally. Just you know, maybe they're onto him now. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's a new tactic that uh, that you might not find in some some books like like David Litz, but you can find lots of good stuff in there. How about that for a segue? Perfect. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. And interview. <laughs> David Litt is a former speechwriter for President Obama and best-selling author of Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years. His second book, Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think, is out now and is also sure to be a bestseller. David, thanks for joining us. For sure. You went to Yale. You were uh, a member of an improv comedy group there. You were editor-in-chief of the Yale Record, which I guess is now the oldest humor magazine in the world. You could have had the a oldest, I think we called it the oldest college humor. We, we, and it, we were very specific to caveat it, but yeah, it's, it's old. That's the <laughs> – It's really old and full of old funny stuff. You could have headed for a career in entertainment – Right. But you also worked as a field organizer in Ohio for Obama. What was your experience on that campaign like, first of all? I started as a field organizer because, like you said, I originally thought, you know, I'm probably going to move to New York or L.A. Those were the two places I was thinking. Worcester, Ohio was not on my list of places I might move after college. <laughs> I grew up in New York City. So, um, you know, I was thinking about one of those two big cities. And then I saw Obama give a speech on TV uh, in mm. 2008. This was right after the Iowa caucuses. He had just won. He delivered that speech. He said, people who love this country can change it. And I remember thinking, okay, I think he's talking to me. And of course, mm. millions of other people also heard that and were like, I think he's talking to me, which is why it was such <laughs> right. a good speech. Right. But and that speech really did change my life. And I ended up 
starting off I, just in the primaries on campus because I was uh, graduating college in 08. So I pestered all of my friends. That was my service to the cause. And then the moment school was done, I got in my car, which I barely knew how to drive because I drew up, grew up in Manhattan. <laughs> right. And blundered my way to Ohio. And I worked in Worcester for about five months. Now, Worcester is a kind of dairy farming slash small liberal arts campus county about an hour south of Cleveland. And I will say for anyone listening to this, and I assume there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who want to be involved in campaigns, field organizing was an extraordinary experience. Like mm -hmm. I still look back on that job and it was one of the most tiring things I did, but it was and like most difficult, but it was also one of the best things I did, especially in terms of becoming a speechwriter and a writer, because when you are talking with someone, when you're talking with a volunteer and trying to convince them to sign up for another shift, or you're talking to an undecided voter and trying to convince them to support Obama in this case, you're, you're learning how to construct an argument. And later on, I ended up constructing arguments for people who had much bigger platforms than you know me when I would drive around Ohio. <laughs> but the, the basics are the same. And you know I find in politics, it's so easy to get removed from the people who are most affected by policy. Um, that's, you know, I live in DC now and I love what I do, but it's, you, you, you end up in the bubble a little bit. And so I always recommend for people, if you can, if you can be an organizer, if you have the chance to drop everything and just go organize for a couple of months, you will learn so much and you will have an experience that is much harder to get the longer you go in a, a career in politics. Oh Yeah. That's great advice. Um, so you eventually ended up at the White House and you were, um, as we said earlier, President Obama's speechwriter. Do you have an, a favorite interaction with him that many people who are listening might not know about? Well, I have a couple. Um, I should say, by the way, I was I was one of President Obama's right. speechwriters. You're I'm the best one, though. <laughs> um, as far as no, I know, I you're to... the only speechwriter that doesn't actually have a podcast, too. So that's true. Um, I feel like there was a, a form you signed that said when you leave the White House, uh, if you're in the speechwriting office, you need a podcast, and I <laughs> I must have missed it. Um, but uh, I I think that the um, the reason I bring that up was just because I, when I started the White House, I was 24 mm -hmm. and did not really know what I was doing. I mean, I had been writing speeches for about two years, but I was not an expert by any means. And my experience at the White House was an amazing experience in part because I was an entry level speechwriter at the White House. And so I wasn't writing, you know, the State of the Union or something like that. What I did end up kind of specializing in were the joke speeches. Um, mm -hmm. uh, starting in 2012, I was kind of like the token funny person at the White House because I did <laughs> have what in Washington passes for a comedy background, right? You know, I had, I had done improv in college. And therefore people said, okay, well, you must be professionally funny. And I was like, well, not quite, <laughs> but I'll go with it. And, you know, I will say I got very, um, very lucky because one of the things I got to see were all of these traits of President Obama's in these low stakes joke contexts that ended up, I think, telling me something about who he is and was as a president in much larger contexts. So I've told a couple of these stories. Um, I used to tell them for the moth on stage. And, uh, you know, there was one point when, uh, um, you know, the first time I, I met President Obama and I literally blacked out. And uh, wow. another time when, um, and you're just going to have to bear with me on this one. We There was a picture of him that we were going to use for a slide. And he looked shockingly like Hitler 
in this picture. And I had to tell him that he looked like Hitler. Yeah, it was very (laughs) strange because I was the only person, I think, in history who has ever compared the president to Hitler to the president before. Um, And to his credit, uh, he thought it was the the hardest I've ever seen him laugh when someone pointed that or when someone said, you know, he didn't see the picture. But I had to say, well, we had to take that picture out of the slideshow, Mr. President, because you kind of look like Hitler in it. And um, and I, I we sh- we're going off on a weird sidetrack, but should be clear, this was a rare occurrence. I never President Obama does not look like Hitler in pictures. He does not look like Hitler in real life. Um, in that picture, and I think we had photoshopped uh, Michelle Obama's bangs onto his head, and the light was <laughs> off. So, uh, you know, that's neither here nor there, but still a little important uh, part of history that I got to I got to be part of. So you went from. One moment snapshot in time where the president looked a little bit like Hitler to a president that is acting a lot like Hitler. So Yes, this president looks like Hitler, but that means something very different. Yeah. <laughs> just to bring the interview to a screeching halt. Uh, yeah. Let's all just sit here and, and enjoy and enjoy it. I'm I'm counting. It's nine minutes and thirty seconds and we already got to, to Godwin's Law. So oh, yeah, I, was gonna uh, say, I don't know if this a is a record. Of time. <laughs> um you you mentioned you wrote a lot of the, the jokes to get back to some jokes now and you wrote for the correspondence dinner. Did you write some of those uh, jokes um, roasting Donald Trump? I didn't. And I will say I wish I had. I mean, those were great jokes. But those were um, John Lovett, who is, of course, one of the Crooked Media uh, co-founders. And he was he was like the funny guy at the White House before he left. And then I kind of took over the the token funny person role. So he and Judd Apatow worked together on that. And uh, I mean, I will say for for my from my perspective, I was watching because that was the first correspondence center I was ever at. I had just been at the White House for four weeks. Oh, wow. And so I was watching from the back of the room, like I was in kind of the cheap seats. And the the remarkable thing then was that everybody in the room was so excited to see Trump get taken down, not just the Democrats and not just the media, <laughs> but like the Republicans. I mean, you know, um, there were there were like Reince Priebus was there. You know, this was a room full of people who – if you ask them today, would say, oh, no, Donald Trump's the best president of our lifetime. He's better than Lincoln. Um, and at the time, <laughs> they thought he was such a joke. And that you never saw that at the Correspondence Center where you got the Democrats and Republicans laughing equally hard at someone. And, and I will say like my theory, because I feel like you know, everyone needs a theory of Trump. And my theory is that he didn't run because he was like to get back at Obama. I think he ran because he saw that moment and thought, oh, if you – become the president, everybody loves you and you get to like attack your enemies and everyone thinks you're great. And it turns out that's totally the opposite of how being the president works. If you're the president, mostly people don't like you. Even when you're doing a good job, people don't like you, hmm. let alone when you're doing a, a terrible job like we're seeing at the moment. Let's talk about your book some more now, Democracy in One Book or Less. Um, why did you write it and what's the most important thing that people should take from it? This is a book about how we shatter Mitch McConnell's dreams within Mitch McConnell's lifetime. Okay. I think that's the you just sold a copy and maybe yeah. three to every single person listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you, it took me a really long time uh, to figure out what this book is about because I did want it to be expansive. It covers voting rights, gerrymandering. Uh, it covers judges. It covers the filibuster. It goes through all this stuff. But what I also really wanted was something that wasn't boring and wasn't depressing 
and gives you everything you need to know and really nothing more than that. I, I like those kinds of books. I like, you know, no question, there are people who can get through big, thick books that um, are like full of political science and research. And I could, but only because it was my job. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote this for people like me who who really want to say, okay, you know, maybe I will dig in more to one of these topics. But even if I only read just one book, I want this book to give me the tools I need to figure out what went wrong with our democracy and how we change it. And here, here's where the Mitch McConnell of it comes in. Because when I was at the White House, and then certainly during the Trump era, and I'm sure that everybody listening to this has had this experience, this disconnect between what Americans want and what we get from our government. So Mm -hmm. on gun violence, on the environment, now on policing and racial justice, on the economy, on healthcare, the American people want one thing, and experts agree with us that it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. And yet, for some reason, we are not getting it from our government. And yet we live in a representative democracy. So like, how would you explain that to a Martian? You know what I mean? <laughs> and so th- I guess this book is how I would explain that to a Martian. It's that Mitch McConnell and his friends have very carefully changed our system of government over the last 40 years, mostly within my lifetime. I'm 33 years old. So that our government works completely differently than it used to, and it's less representative than it used to be. And that includes, by the way, not just all the the policy issues I just mentioned, but perhaps most obviously, in 2016, we the people picked one person to be the president, and we got someone else. And mm-hmm. more people voted for Democrats for Senate, and Republicans were in charge. And in 2012, that was true in the House. So this is happening over and over and over again. And if we want to be able to keep this fundamental promise that got me involved in politics, the thing that Obama said, that people who love this country can change it. If we want that to be true five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, we need to restore our democracy and undo all of this stuff that Mitch McConnell and and his buddies have done. You said that it's time for Democrats to fight hard, but it's also time for us to fight fair. Why make that distinction? So I think it's really important to say that a one-party democracy is not a democracy. And that's certainly true if your one-party democracy is the the current iteration of the Republican Party, which I think is what Trump would love, right? He would love to have a, a government that's a democracy as long as he's always in charge. Right. The other possibility when you look at what people might want is to say, well, how do we take the system that has been rigged in one direction and re-rig it so that we win every election? And that's not good for democracy either. I think the whole idea, the central idea at the heart of our country is that people should get what they want most of the time. And at the same time, our fundamental rights need to be protected. You know, there's no question that like, um, you know, it's why we have courts. It's why we need to be worried about the tyranny of the majority. But fundamentally, we're, we're supposed to be a majoritarian country where what people want is what we get. And so, for example, um, you know, I absolutely believe that we should um, make a voter registration automatic, just to pick one example, mm-hmm. right? Everyone should be able to just be registered automatically. That the, They're doing it in, other, in many states, it works. They do it in other countries and it works. What we shouldn't do is pass a kind of voter suppression law targeting Republican voters like the ones that have, have been passed targeting Democratic voters. So if you came up with some idea, you said, okay, well, if you're living in a rural uh, county, we won't send you a mail-in ballot, but if you live within city limits, we will send you a mail-in ballot. That would be totally discriminatory and wrong. 
even though it might theoretically help Democrats win elections in the short term. We should not do that. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by fighting hard and fighting fair. Um, the one thing I will add to that is that at the same time, we need to recognize how unfair the system has become. So a lot of the things, we need big changes. So this is not an argument for small change. It's an argument for thinking through the big changes we want to do. Let me give you just one example. The Senate filibuster, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Ultimately, I'm pretty sure we need to get rid of the legislative filibuster. That's a huge change in our government. But the reason we should do it is not because it's going to help Democrats. It's because it's going to help America. Right. Well, I think that's those are great points. Also, to keep in mind, making it a fair fight is helping Democrats because right now um, the only way Republicans can really win is by suppressing the vote, by gerrymandering, by cheating, and um, and doing all that. When we can flip our you know local legislatures and draw some fair lines and and get rid of gerrymandering and put some teeth back in uh, the Voting Rights Act and all of those things. Then we've got a level playing field, and that favors just happens to favor, as you said, people who all agree on these um, on the direction that our country wants to go. I mean, we don't all agree, but yeah. the majority of us does. So, I, I couldn't say it better. Um, the thing that I think we will see in the short term, if we can do that, I do think that would be beneficial to Democrats. In the long term, I think Republicans would change, and that would also really be good for our country, right? Like more reasonable Republicans, even though I am a proud Democrat. Having more reasonable Republicans would also be very, very important for getting all the things that we want. And and it this used to be, you know, it used to be that let's say fighting climate change was a bipartisan priority. Immigration reform used to be a bipartisan idea. Even things like gun safety. I mean, these these were are like basic things. Certainly among voters, these are bipartisan ideas. Basic so, uh, pandemic response used to be pretty bipartisan. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean the and this idea of. The lengths – you wouldn't see what you see today, the lengths that Republicans are going, first of all, to appease Trump, but even before Trump, to appease Fox News, right? Like like they're, mm. the Fox News base is not that big, but it is big enough that if you capture that base and then try to keep enough people from voting, you have a plausible chance of winning elections. And that's what we're seeing Trump and McConnell and the Republican Party as an institution trying over and over again. Rather than trying to persuade people with good ideas, they're saying, if our bad ideas hurt you, we're just going to kick you out of our democracy and pass them anyway. I spent too long this morning on Twitter watching uh, Ted Cruz go back and forth with with Ron Perlman. Uh, it just kind of in disbelief that even my my expectations of Ted Cruz are so low. <laughs> But still, oh, he, he's managed to be completely unreasonable and insane today. And it's like, oh, so this is who's this is who's making decisions. Okay, great. He picked the wrong dude too to go to to go head to head with Ron Perlman. I actually, um, not to drop names, I know Ron and work with him a bit, and uh, he does not suffer fools, and he definitely doesn't suffer that fool. And now, have you have you wrestled Ron Perlman? I think that's the. The, the question that is on everybody's mind today, at least as we're recording this. <laughs> yeah, uh, that might be in the works. I don't, but Okay, good. I want to see that tw that Twitter fight. He would, um, he would take me down. He's actually the voice of um, MMA. He, he uh, does the uh, intros for the MMA fights. Really? Yeah. 
Okay. I did. This, I feel like I have learned a lot already on this podcast. This is great. <laughs> I, I, but I enjoyed this digression. I will say here's, here's, let me try to tie this back to the book for a second. So Ted Cruz was elected in this terrible Texas primary system where you have a convention and then a, you have the primary election, then you have a runoff. And this is not in the book. So I'm pretty sure this is right. Either way, he was elected in a primary where basically no one voted. And one of the things that I do talk about in the book when we talk about making elections fairer is not just in swing states, but in red states and blue states. How do you make it so that everyone has a voice in the primary election because that decides who ultimately wins? And if I think if every Texas Republican, even if every Texas Republican had voted, the odds that Ted Cruz would have won would have gone way down. And we probably rather than having at the time he was like a tea partier. Now, who the hell knows what he is? But at mm-hmm. the time, he was a tea partier. Um, you would have seen someone else. And again, this is not a book about you know the like virtues of establishment Republicans because there's not that met you know it's not that long a list. But I think in general, this idea of how do we just make sure that no matter who you are, if you want to have a voice in our democracy, if you want to be part of it, you can. And I think that should apply to everybody. So that's I guess going back to fighting fair. That's what I mean by fighting fair. I I want everyone to be able who lives in America and who it belongs to this country you should have a say in how it's run and i think that's a very basic thing it's not too much to ask in the united states yeah you did a really nice job of bringing that my random comment back to the book uh, like and <laughs> guaranteeing that it makes it into the podcast because i assumed <laughs> steve was gonna edit that part out no, now, now we have to keep it in no i was not but gonna edit we, it out but now we get to keep it in Tech why, would I, why would I edit out me name dropping that i know ron perlman i mean <laughs> that was gonna stay for sure so. um i will i'll i'll na- i'll uh you know if we're playing name drop uh, bingo here so ron perlman who i do not No, I should say. Um, But he started following me on Twitter like four days ago. So I was like, you know, um, and I was like, this is this is exciting. You know, this is cool. And then suddenly he uh, he pops up and I probably would not have known about it if uh, if it were not for, you know, some Twitter timing. Actually, that's not true. I totally would have known about it. I was just trying to sneak a really (laughs) lame Twitter name drop into there. How can other people be like Ron Perlman and follow you on Twitter? <laughs> oh, I'm I'm at David Litt at all the things, uh, L-I-T-T. Um, yeah, on all of the all of the various things. The things. Um, and and you can and for book specific stuff, I'm also at davidlitbooks.com. I uh, I have like a spiffy author website now. I'm very proud of it. Oh, nice. Um, in Amazon's uh, synopsis of your book, uh, at the end it says. Despite his clear-eyed assessment of the dangers we face, Lit remains audaciously optimistic. He offers a to-do list of bold yet achievable changes, a blueprint for restoring the balance of power in America before it's too late. Since you wrote the book, we've had an uprising of Americans in defense of black lives and a very fascist response to the protests, as we've said. Does your blueprint still fundamentally apply and are you still as optimistic as you were? What really worries me is what we've seen happen in countries like the Philippines, in countries like Hungary, mm-hmm. um, in Russia under Putin, where countries that used to be democracies elect a strongman, mm-hmm. and then those democratic institutions are corrupted. And so you still have the vestiges of it, right? In, in Russia, they have elections. It's just that they're not fair or free elections, and Putin is guaranteed to win every time. They have a constitution. But now they're trying to amend that constitution so that Putin can essentially rule for life. Um, That, I think, is what Trump really aspires to. And so here is why I'm optimistic that 
we can still keep him from doing that. I think if you look at everything going on in America right now, the, the ultimate question in a democracy is, can we fix ourselves? Are we able to use the political process to fix the political process? And the answer is yes. It's not going to be easy. But what I argue in the book, it's you know, in this, the book is democracy in one book or less, how it works, why it doesn't, and why fixing it is easier than you think. And the reason I think it's easier than you think, probably, is that so much of what we need to do, we can do just by simply passing a law and having the president sign it. So, for example, we talked about automatic voter registration earlier. A single federal law could do that. A single federal law could make Washington, D.C. a state, which would both enfranchise mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of people, but it would also add two senators from a non-white majority state, which it's about time. Um, D.C. would be the only only the second non-white majority state other than Hawaii. So the, those two things right off the bat, a law can do that. We can get rid of the filibuster with 50 Senate votes. It, we could just do it, right? This is not magic. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. It doesn't require someone like Paul Ryan to grow a spine. We can do this stuff. And, and so throughout the book, what I tried to do is every single chapter roughly has the same structure, which is how did we get here? But then also, how do we move forward in a way that doesn't require a constitutional amendment? And it doesn't require us to ask politely for Mitch McConnell to give up on his grand plan to seize power forever in America, because he's not going to do that. But we don't need him to. All we need to do is win big once and use the power we win in an election the right way. Uh, and, and that's I call that like the Skywalker window, which I can go into if you want. The Skywalker Definitely. window. <laughs> yeah, I was like, does that silence mean yes is, or is no? It a, is it a Star Wars reference? Because I'm down Absolutely. for that. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, it is totally a Star Wars reference. So this is – when I was growing up, I watched Schoolhouse Rock. I could sing along to all of I'm Just a Bill. And it had this theory of change that was very deliberative, right? So like a bunch of people come up with an idea. It, it surfaces up. It gradually becomes a bill. It gets debated in committee. It goes to you know uh, another committee. It the House, the Senate, the President, so on. Today, the way that change works on a federal level is a lot like the, the situation that Luke Skywalker found himself in at the end of the first Star Wars movie. So you have the Death Star, and it's seemingly impenetrable, but there's this tiny little gap. And that shot is really hard to make, and you don't have a lot of time to do it, right? You only have a few seconds. But if you make that shot, everything changes almost instantly. And that's where I think we have an enormous amount of opportunity, and it's what makes me an optimist about long-term, at least, the future of our country, is that let's say we win the House and the Senate and the White House. We have a Skywalker window. Um, that's why I wrote this book. What do we do in that situation? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to get rid of the Senate filibuster so we can actually pass some stuff. And then we need to just start getting things done that are going to restore a representative democracy. So we talked about some of them, but there's others. We could re-enfranchise formerly incarcerated people who in many states still can't vote. Right. Mm -hmm. um, another thing we could do, we could pass immigration reform so that people who live here have a chance to become citizens. And that's also a voting issue because if you're not a citizen, you can't vote. Although that didn't used to be the case. Non-citizens, when America started out, could vote, um, which I was fascinated to learn. But- hmm. Right now, you cannot vote if you're not a citizen in nearly every situation. And so immigration reform is actually democracy reform. They're the same thing. So we can do all of this. And, and I think the issue is you just have to do it quickly and assertively. And you don't wait. You got to just do it. Well, typically we end up by asking 
what gives you the most hope, but I, I think you just answered that in, in that last question. So it did actually give me a lot of hope. Yeah. Um, like the, 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 the analogy were like the analogy is so, um, it's, it's perfect for this moment. It's perfect doing a star Wars analogy, speaking (laughs) to the rebel Alliance anyway. So actually, you know what, can I, can I tell you a story that gave me a ton of hope? Sure. Of course. Um, But it's not, it's not about this book. It's about my, my last book, but it's still, I was just so struck by this. And it's just a reminder that, that the work that we all do really does matter. Mm. So uh, I wrote a speech for a woman named Stacy Lynn. She's not a politician. Her daughter had a heart condition when she was born. Um, she was basically born with a hole in her heart. And she needed surgery. Uh, by the time she was, I think, three, she needed three open heart surgeries in order to to mm. live. And without the Affordable Care Act, her parents would have at least gone bankrupt and she might not have gotten these surgeries. This, this little girl, Zoe, might not have gotten these surgeries that she needed in order to survive. And so Stacy told her story and Zoe's story at the Democratic National Convention in 2012. And I was uh, you know, lucky enough to work with Stacy on her remarks. It was one of the, the most um, inspiring speeches I ever got to be a part of. And, and you know, I obviously got to be a part of some really inspiring speeches. So I, I ended my first book by talking about where she was at because I, I got to go down to Arizona where she, um, she lives with her family and I got to watch Zoe in karate class, right? And like, <laughs> you know, if you want to know why we fought for the Affordable Care Act, well, here's this kid who might not have lived without the Affordable Care Act and she's like punching and kicking up a storm, right? So <laughs> it was amazing. But not just that. Then the other day uh, on social media, her mom, Stacy, posted a picture of Zoe and this was during the the protests mm-hmm. and Zoe was at home because she's a little kid and and obviously you know they're careful with covid right. but Zoe was in her house and on her own she decided she was going to kneel for 8 minutes and 46 seconds and so is this picture of Zoe in her house i forget how old she is now but and she's kneeling in honor of George Floyd and i feel like that's America, right? Like that moment when you say it's not that some of us are are helped when we all come together. It's also that we then turn around and we help someone else, mm-hmm. and and we're all pushing each other forward. And even a little, you know, a little kid gets that. And to watch her become part of that, to go from being a story about someone who's who's vulnerable and needs our help to becoming the kind of person who's going to grow up and help other people and fight for other people. And how cool is that? And I think that story is still alive and we can still keep it alive. And to to bring it back from the last book to this book, the last book was about starting that story and this book's about what we do to keep it going. Um, what a powerful what an, story. Yeah, that that's absolutely I think that's so important because I think we, you know, we talk about so many of the people who listen to this podcast are are volunteers and sacrifice their free time and money and and everything else and sometimes you can forget like you you know what the big picture is you know protecting our democracy but then you forget sometimes as you're doing all this work about the the real lives that you're saving and changing and transforming behind it that's so such an important reminder yeah 100% like if you, if you're a listener to this podcast and you're in the fight which i assume is most of the listeners to this podcast the the work you're doing is so 
worth it. And I feel like every, all of us these days, like one, I don't know, I'll just speak for myself. Once a day, I have this moment of like, really? Are, are, we, are we still fighting these fights? Are we still living mm-hmm. in this version of America? Mm-hmm. Um, but it it is worth it. It just, it not every day, but when you look over the the long horizon, it's always worth it. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you for reminding us of that, too. And it's uh, so fun to speak with you. Um, I hope everyone picks up your book, which is available now. Once again, it's called Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think. We'll have a link to it on our show notes page as well. And um, I'll try to put my money where my mouth is and see if we can get Ron Perlman to uh, retweet something about this interview, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be good. I feel like that's, you know, the, the logical conclusion here is that, um, you know, he needs to if he retweets something about the interview I, and I wrestled Jim Jordan, I think that's that's where we're headed in 2020. <laughs> it only makes sense. <laughs> All right. The dumpster fire just keeps. That, <laughs> that, that's exactly right. Yeah, we talked optimism, but also at the same time, like let's all just let's all embrace it a little bit. <laughs> all right, thank you so much. That was such a great interview. <laughs> thank you both. This was really fun. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for stepping up and taking action. We win when we all get involved. Drop us a note and let us know about the work that you're doing. Tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at Mariah underscore Craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple and wherever you get your pods and share this with other people. We are going to double up in July. Double July. I don't know the alliteration there, but... We got to workshop that. We got to workshop that check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast and of course sign up to volunteer we really appreciate you being here with us and for for those of you who are who's made it all the way to the end you should know <laughs> cliffhanger that I, my coronavirus test came back negative so uh so Ooh. all good yeah all good for now and just i'm gonna but i'm gonna keep wearing my mask and washing my hands and i hope everybody out there is doing that and staying healthy Stay safe, everyone. We'll see you next week.